Nederland heeft een demotionair kabinet als gevolg van het toeslagenschandaal. Daarom volgde, na vele debatten, het instellen van de avondklok met destateuze gevolgen. Het werd voor velen de bekende druppel die de emmer deed overlopen, waarna de rellen in vele grote steden niet meer te overzien waren. Er werd geplunderd, er werd gestolen en er werd met stenen, messen en vuurwerk naar de politie gegooid. Ik ben bang dat op weg zijn naar een burgeroorlog, zei een burgemeester van een zwaar getroffen stad. Hij had geen ongelijk. Anderen stelden dat de gewelddadige coronarellen in Nederland de ernstigste waren in 40 jaar sinds de geweldige krakerellen in de jaren 80. Niet helemaal juist, maar het geheugen is kort. Zelfs een half jaar geleden waren er nog hevige straatrellen in onder meer Utrecht en Den Haag. Toen werden die losgeslagen tuig genoemd, nu criminelen. Toen betrof het in belangrijke grote mate allochtone jongeren. Nu betreft het meer gemengd beeld variëren van bezorgde wereldverbeteraars tot rellende pubers en hardcore plunderaars. Vanaf het begin van de coronapandemie was er een aanvankelijk klein, maar groeiende groep tegenstanders van het coronabeleid van de regering. Een deel trok het gevaar van de pandemie fundamenteel in twijfel, anderen vonden de maatregel overtrokken en de vrijheidsbeneming kastotofaal. Nederland is een gedoogland. Niet alleen bij drugs, maar in vele opzichten worden wetten door de overheid en politie en door justitie niet gehandhaafd. Dat geldt bij uitstek in Amsterdam, waar zelfs de politie alle verkeersregels degeert. Daar komt nog bij dat er in brede kring onder de bevolking steeds meer kritiek is op het coronabeleid van de regering. Nederland is de laatste van alle landen van de Europese Unie die vaccines verspreidt. Eerder al werd het gebruik van mondkapjes eerst afgewezen en naderhand verplicht gesteld. Nu is er een vertraging van vaccinaties ontstaan omdat er door minister De Jonge niet genoeg vaccines zijn ingekocht en dat het totaal aan visie ontbrak om inentingposten vroegtijdig op te zetten. Zelfs op Schiphol ontbreekt het aan teststraten voor inkomende passagiers. Het is dan ook niet verwonderlijk dat velen zich afvragen waarom de voordeur op slot moet met ongekende restricties, terwijl men de achterdeur openlaat voor inkomende reizigers, welke niet getest worden. Dweilen met de kraan open, wordt er gezegd, en heeft als gevolg dat het vertrouwen in het coronabeleid scherp is afgenomen. Dat is voor de regering ook een realiteit geworden en zo werd er vorige week bedacht en bekendgemaakt dat iedereen die naar Nederland wil reizen naast de al verplichte PCR-test ook een negatieve sneltest moet kunnen overleggen van maximaal vier uur oud bij het beginnen van de reis. Voor veel Nederlanders in het buitenland is dit niet haalbaar volgens het SNBN, de Stichting Nederlanders Buiten Nederland, omdat op vele vlieghavens geen testlocaties aanwezig zijn.
En daarom hebben zij een brandbrief naar de Nederlandse regering gestuurd. Daarin stelt men dat het SNBN begrijpt en onderschrijft het belang van het terugdringen van internationale reisbewegingen. Maar met deze nieuwe maatregelingen kan men zelfs in noodsituaties niet meer naar Nederland komen. De overheid verwijst vervolgens naar buitenlandse zaken om je bij deze situatie te ondersteunen, maar geeft tegelijkertijd aan dat er geen garanties kunnen worden gegeven. Bovendien vindt de stichting dat als je in een noodsituatie zit, is dit wel het laatste waar je op zit te wachten dat je vervolgens een extra laag bureaucratie in de maag gesplitst krijgt. Laten we hopen dat deze restrictie snel versoepelt of afgeschaft wordt en als u hierover meer wilt meten, ga dan even naar hun website nederlandersbuitennederlanders.nl waar u verder een uitgebreid verslag kunt lezen. Ook wordt aangeraden uw reis naar Nederland te beperken en als het een noodsituatie is, raagpleeg u vooral dan eerst even uw vliegmaatschappij. Van de wereld weet ik niets, niets dan wat ik hoor en zie, niets dan wat ik lees. Ik ken geen andere landen, zelfs al ben ik er geweest. Grote steden ken ik niet, behalve uit de boeken, behalve van tv. Ik ken geen andere stad. Dan de stad waarin ik leef. Zij stuurt me kaarten uit Madrid en uit Moskou komt een brief. Met de prachtigste verhalen. God, wat is er niet? Mijn hart vol en ook liefst uit Londen. Van de wereld weet ik niets, niets dan wat ik hoor en zie. Niets dan wat ik voel, ik leef dag tot dag, zonder vrees en zonder doel. Verre landen ken ik niet, behalve uit mijn atlas, die droom ik elke nacht. Maar ik droom alleen de landen, waar ze ooit aan mijn dag. Als een mooie groot geloof aan de muur van mij gedacht, hangt een wereldkaart te wachten tot ze terugkomt. Met haar reizen in mijn hoofd steek ik vlaggen in de aarde, 
Dezelfde kleur, dezelfde waarde. Maar zij stuurt me kaarten uit Madrid. En uit Moskou komt een brief. Met het prachtigste verhaal. Oh God, wat is ze lief. zit vanochtend Mark van der Zalm en Mark is die eigenaar van Van der Zalm Associates. Het is een, een bedrijf dat zich bezighoudt met uh, landschaparchitectuur en planning en ze doen wel wat residential, maar ze doen heel veel parken en heel veel grote ontwerpen voor uh, developments die u in de stad en buiten de stad ziet. Uh, het programma of het interview gaat in het Engels, want Mike spreekt jammer genoeg geen Nederlands, maar is natuurlijk wel van Nederlandse afkomst, want zijn vader en zijn oom waren samen begonnen met de nap nurseries. Dus welkom Mike around my table this morning, and I just explained to the uh, listeners that you are, you know, um, Dutch descent, and um, your father and your uh, uncle were, you know, well known here. And um, Van der Zalm and Associates, tell me one thing. They started at NAPS. That's right. But why didn't you go and start continue with at NAPS? You became a landscape architect. That's right. Yes. Thanks, Harma. It's good to be here and good to be with you. I, um, I started with uh, my father in the nursery business, just working after school. It was everything that uh, our family had known since they had immigrated. Um, and we started in the bulb business that grew into plant propagation and uh, became art naps. Um, and ultimately, my dad started Arts Nursery and my sister still runs it today. But for me, I enjoyed it, but I didn't enjoy the cold, uh, rainy days in October weeding in the garden center. And I felt there's got to be something else that I can do that would still connect me to the family business somehow. Um, but allow me to explore something different and uh, maybe something a little um, uh, that was a little more uh, creative um, that I felt like I could get into design. And so that's when I uh, started going to the clock in Burnaby, buying flowers for uh, the flower shop. And I sat next to a, a man there uh, from uh, West Van Florist, and he was a landscape architect. And so we got to talking. And he sort of influenced that sort of direction to a point where I investigated a little bit more as to what I might want to do for myself. So, and, and so where, where did you take your education for that? I, um, I was already going through a, a pre-law degree because I was very interested in law. And I still am. Oh, that's I, different. I, than very, different. <laughs> very different. <laughs> I, I still very much appreciate it and love the, the technicality of the law. And, um, 
but I felt it like... It comes in handy, Mike. I still use it every day, but I, I felt like after I'd finished that criminology background, I thought, okay, where do you learn about landscape architecture? I want to, I want to investigate this. So I did, and uh, I ended up doing a survey of schools in Western Canada and the United States. Of course, there's a school in, in, in Eastern Canada at the University of Guelph, a good, a good school. But I settled on uh, Utah State University. It was in uh, Western United States, great reputation. Um, and I wanted something different from my undergrad. I wanted to have a different experience. So I decided to go to Utah. Okay, but you did also somewhere else you um, you studied. Yeah, I was at Simon Fraser University here go. in Burnaby. And um, that was the history and the um, criminology background setting me up for law school. But, okay. uh, you know, that was not wasted. I still, uh, it helps me in my trivial pursuit uh, game playing. And I really do enjoy uh, those aspects of my education too. Well, on your website, it says, you know, that... Um, Um, you started very humble in 1999. I filed my business papers and to create a proprietorship from the spare bedroom of my apartment in the west side of Vancouver. Wow. And now you have 25 employees. Yeah, we've. Um, it definitely started small. But as you and I have been chatting about, I mean, always ambitious about building something bigger. And wanting to be somewhat, uh, make an impact. You know, I know you can do that at almost any scale based on how, you know, passionate you are about the work. But I felt like I wanted to grow and take on bigger projects. So working out of my spare bedroom just made sense. I mean, I was young. I was I was newly married. I didn't uh, have a lot of financial resources. So we started there uh, at uh, Dunbar and 29th Avenue west on the west side of Vancouver. And then eventually moved into Vancouver into an office space I shared with another landscape architect. Your family was uh, quite hesitant about that, I understand. Well, I think they they probably felt, ooh, what are you taking these chances and, and why well, don't you do? As you a, do. As a, as, as, yeah, as an entrepreneur, you do take chances. You know, my family was always very, very supportive of those. If I was confident and, and ready to make the, the move, They were supportive and, and certainly didn't try and talk me out of anything. It was just a very supportive all the way along. Well, we just before we started this interview, we had a, we talked about your heritage, you know, and your your father being, you know, a doer and um, saw opportunities, which we also recognize not a lot of Canadians do here, mm. unfortunately. I mean, the Dutch are known as being very entrepreneurial inclined. And um, we see more uh, opportunities. There's no doubt about it. And you must definitely have inherited that. I, I feel like that came very honest through my family. I think uh, the Vandersholms in our in our village in Nordwekerhout um, were uh, contractors. They were and bar, uh, bulb uh, industry people, farmers, but um, always ran fairly big operations. And I was always... Um, intrigued by the fact that this small village in Holland um, bred this group of, of people uh, that developed these businesses with a larger outlook. They, they sold to Europe, they sold to Asia, they sold to the United States and North America. Even back, you know, in the, in the 30s, they were having salesmen leave this village and travel around the world to sell. And I thought that was incredible. And I, sold, I think that gave me a sense that uh, anything is possible. 
not only your family, uh, maybe you haven't listened to these programs, but I had not long ago Carl van Noord ah, from yeah. van Noord Bulbs. Yeah, yeah. Same same kind of right. you know uh, family and and dynamics. Absolutely. So. Um, they sold also to North America, etc., and they are yeah. now four generations. So it it definitely has an inclination of the Dutch, the, the stewardship, the at, at seeing of opportunities, and uh, and then embracing them and impl- implementing them. Absolutely, and Carl's a great example because I know Carl well. He's a friend and a hard worker and, and a, a multi-generational business person, but he came from the exact same place that my father and my family came from and the same village, and Carl still has a business in Nordwecker House. Yes, he does. And so I, I find that to be inspirational as well. You know, and, and so I felt, hey, my business could have greater aspirations, both in the scope of the work, the locations for the work, and in the size of the staff that I was going to build. Now, you started off with residential, and um, as we just discussed, um, I have an interior design architectural mm-hmm. company, and um, we do a lot of gardens. Yes. Okay. Um, you started with residential. It's a different scope of doing that. Than where you are at at the moment, I understand. Although there's a small percentage residential, yours is more um, municipality and big parks. That's how, true. How 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 come? How did you make that change, or why did you make that change? I think it was always an aspiration. I felt I, I maybe when I started, I didn't have an appreciation for the complexity of residential design, and I wanted to do bigger projects right away. But as I've grown and matured as a designer, I realize there's it, you can have that sense of intricate intricate design even with residential gardens and they're in many ways more difficult to do than some of the commercial work that i i'm taking on right now even though our scope is with large developers with um with uh, you know big pension funds and things like that that finance large uh, uh developments um i find that that was something i wanted to do because i found it complicated, but I found it very interesting to collaborate with big teams of consultants. Our work now focuses on large mixed-use developments, towers, uh, multi-acreage townhome developments, but also public parks, uh, which is another yeah, aspect of parks, our work. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I've seen that. That's that's that, that would be of very good interest because um, for example, one of our clients is at UBC and um, uh, temporarily, while we do another house in the city, um, but the gardens there are awesome, yeah. awesome. They are beautiful. Right. But when you go and deal with a big developer, you have a different connection than when you do have it with an individual. Absolutely. The, the developer is more, well, yeah, do it, okay, it suits fine, you know, you have to work off the plans, mm-hmm. but... When you have an individual, you work through the plan and there are changes. Yeah. That's Am I true. right? Absolutely. And it's more of a personal process where you're getting to know that individual client and you're and you're trying to realize what they want because they're going to inhabit it the project in a different way than a developer would. Although, yeah. you know, good developers are the same as good multi-generational family businesses. And I've always realized sitting down in a room with Concord or with Boza um, as examples, they're family businesses, even though they're massive. 
they still have the same approach to the design. They're trying to create something of value. Um, they're very interested in some of the detail and they want it to be consistent with the marketing. So it's a very good process as well for us as designers to go through with insightful development teams. I really appreciate that. But a totally different outlook when you're designing something for the public at large. You know, a public park requires you to take into account that your clients aren't just the municipality. They're it's everybody who uses clients, it. Yes. Everyone who comes to the park is your client. They're going to experience it in a different way and you have a responsibility to them. So where do you focus on more when you do a, a, a park for a municipality? Okay, urban design, we all mm-hmm. call that. Um What is your focus? Are there certain structures or outlines what you need to use in in respect to design? That does it have certain key points where it has to adhere to? There usually is a, a set of goalposts that yep, the yep. municipality is going to say we need to achieve X Y Z. That we have to have a, a a bathroom building, a band shelter, three sports fields, a swimming pool. Those sorts of program elements are defined. But as a designer, we have to take those elements and decide how do you create a unique sense of place for that that park so that when somebody comes to it as a as a as someone who wants to enjoy their time in the park, they have a sense of personality for that space. So that's where our team enjoys creating a, um, a unique sort of um, uh, concept for the park. So you can include all those program elements, but how do you put them together into a full experience? Well, yeah, but then um, the 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 issue becomes that you bring the elements together rightfully. But okay, what sets one apart from the other? Because mm. your parks are mm. not all the same. That's right. Okay, so what determines? Because people are spending time there. Mm-hmm. So what is it that ignites you and? propels you to say, okay, we are going to do this here, but in the other park we didn't or whatever. Mm. Explain that to me. Right. I think that has a lot to do with where that park, where that space is. And so there's personality already existing there. And what might be appropriate downtown Vancouver in an urban park might not be appropriate in a suburban or rural or even natural space at Lake Hatsik or something out in Maple Ridge. So you have to spend some time in those spaces and get to feel what that, what in Latin is is referred to as the genius loci of the space, the spirit of that space, and see what um, that might be telling you about what that design could be. Because you've already got a lot of raw material to work with almost in any place you go, and you want to take advantage of that. So we always look at the space we're going. If it's city of Coquitlam, we've done some beautiful parks there recently. And there's lots of new context and old neighborhood context and SkyTrain and views and all sorts of things that you have to take into consideration to really make that space um, take full advantage of the existing landscape it sits in. Um, that's really the secret. Is there more emphasis these days on creating parks than there was before? I believe there is, and I think we're heading into a time where it's going to become critically important. We're finding now, especially in a pandemic society, that people... people spending more time outside. Absolutely. Yes. It's never been... I mean, I sit on a, a, the Pacific Parklands Foundation, which is a charitable wing of Metro Vancouver Parks, and we look at how people are using spaces 
Um, and the pressure on these public parks and these regional parks right now has never been greater. If you go to a public park, the parking lot is full. Yes. Um, you go to a trailhead, there's cars all the way down the mountain. People want to be outside. And so I feel it's a very uh, important uh, profession. Being a landscape architect, there's a responsibility to create um, adapted and, and resilient spaces, uh, especially with uh, the pressure from society to get into the outdoors and with climate change, people needing to be outside. So I, uh, I feel like there's certainly a lot of job security for us and our staff going into the future and a lot of exciting opportunities. Oh, I, I believe that. Now, um, it's not easy, and I understand that. I've been there. Um, when you start a business, you know, you start off with a project and you most likely started out with residential. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you developed it into um, commercial, um, the big development projects. How did you get there? Was that, mm. and I'm going to touch upon where we talked about, uh, context is very important. Right. And I think that somewhat, somehow, on the West Coast, we are losing that. We we, we don't understand that concept, how mm. important it is to have context and how you roll from one into the other. You know, people just he think that they give you a business card and boy, you know, you, you're in business. It right. doesn't work like that. That's right. Okay. So tell me that development because it, it says here that you did five years and then you slowly but surely moved. How did you get into that big business? That's what I mm-hmm. like to know. Well, you're right. I mean, I looked at every opportunity, every new project as a way to um, meet and prove ourselves to a new group of people. You know, and so my goal was to really, it was the quality of the client and the space and the design we were doing was going to sell us and develop our business. So um, we were very fortunate. And and I think this is something, Harma, we spoke with off air a moment ago. It's about working as a team. And I would say that, you know, I work with my internal team, but in some of my early works, my biggest breaks came from associating myself with good, strong designers, engineers, and influential um, construction people. Exactly. That was my, that was the secret. I remember our first really big break was, um, was the, with the city of Surrey, the um, Holland Park. So in city center, it's a, it's a, it's a celebrated park space for fusion festival and all sorts of things. But as a young design firm, we had very little chance of getting that design commission. But I put together an incredible team of leaders that we weren't worried about the fee. We were worried about the work. And, you know, we thought the fee will come later. We'll we'll build our business. Well, but that's mostly, yeah, we if have you forget to, that. We have to build a reputation through good work. And so it was around those people getting together. And we beat out some very good landscape architects to get that project. And I felt a sense of duty to do the right thing and do good work there because of the opportunity that city of Surrey had given me. So well, I, I'm, I'm looking at the picture now and unfortunately the, the uh, listeners can't see it, but it's awesome. You've got these beautiful big, you know, ponds with big flag stone in there. Mm-hmm. And it looks like a, an, an artichoke in the middle right. and, and lots of purple. Is it uh, heather? What is it? Is yeah, it? it's beautiful. Um, there's all sorts of uh, city of Surrey made Holland Park to be a horticultural experience. It is they, awesome. Yeah, it's it's and they've invested in it continually over the years. So they've kept it going and they keep it to a class A maintenance and they capitalize it appropriately to make sure that it keeps that sort of sense of awe 
you know, seasonally with the horticulture. Um, so that was our break. And to answer your question, I would say it came out of big public works where we knocked it out of the park and we maintained relationships. We still work to, with the city of Surrey to this day. It's a good relationship. Some of those people who hired me there are now the general managers in other cities. And now oh, right. we work then in other cities. Yeah, you know course. how that works. Yes. It's been 20, 22 years. You Word know, of mouth, I well, call it. You yeah. go and they yeah. take you with them. And yeah. so we built that trust with them and I didn't let them down. And they've been our patrons, you know, moving forward. They've, we've done work in every municipality, in every province. We haven't worked in, in none of it. That's the only place in Canada we haven't worked yet. Um, and maybe one day we will. But it's taken us abroad. And then it's taken us, you know, overseas. Just that same attitude of building upon each project. How did you get into Asia? I had a, a staff member who was a senior designer with us who um, was from uh, Beijing and kept talking about the opportunity in China and uh, kept encouraging me to take a good look at China. And I trusted him and we were friends. So we did and we took it and he had a very strong work ethic. And I thought, okay, um, you take this ball and run with it and I'll come along. You know, and we'll go, but you're gonna you're gonna have to go and live there because he, he lived up. To yeah, it. he moved and he worked hard and he he gave it everything he had, and so that you know emboldened me to keep investing, to keep going, to keep doing work, and and we ended up having a, a good experience, I would say, in mainland China. But you're not there anymore. No, I I would say that the uncertainty around the last regime change there caused us to rethink our strategy. We had some projects. You and many others. Yeah, I think we weren't alone. We we would realize some of the big work we had was stopping or slowing down, and we didn't know why. And it was all tied to the change in regime and to their change in focus to less regional banks that were financing some of the projects that I was working on and re-centralizing the banking system, and it changed everything. So, you know, China is built on thousands of years of culture. I felt like I, I wasn't going to wait 10 years for them to sort out how I might be able to work with them again. And we felt that we should, you know, uh, continue to support our partners there, but not be fully invested in their designing specifically as Vander and Associates. No, I can understand. And like I said, you know, a lot of people have the same experiences. We have done many projects in um, in Asia too. And mm -hmm. for that same reason, we um, we are not there so much anymore. Right. So that makes all sense. So, You started then to concentrate more, of course, um, where we are now here in That's the West right. Coast, and um, but you also do it in the United States. Yeah, I again going back to your relationship uh, point. When I started my business, I I got involved in some action sports projects, so BMX, skateboarding, inline that sort of niche industry, and I met some very good people in that industry. Again, it, it comes back to the people I still work with to this day. Yeah. And those people who I met back in 1999, and I actually hired one of those individuals to work with me when I was working with as a municipal designer for the township of Langley. And that person influenced me to think, hey, there, there's something important about designing spaces for youth, specifically around skateboarding and the impact it had on communities. And I wanted to keep doing that work. To this day, I'm now invested in a company with that group of people, and we solely design and build um, skate park facilities around the world, but mostly in the United States. Um, we're in uh, 
many regions of the United States, specifically in the southeast, um, Georgia, Tennessee, Florida, and Texas in the west. Um, and um, we're doing a, a, a lot of municipal park projects, and I'm the senior landscape architect on all of those projects. So so you, you designed it, and then you have your team there locally who implements it. That's right. We, we, we were working through bid and tendered work, but because it's such a specialty niche, we were getting into concerns about quality control and then professional liability. So if I'm removed in Vancouver and I have to review work in Austin, Texas, and I find out there's some bumps that might create a safety liability, it's an expensive conversation. You know, no, definitely. <laughs> so we decided to build a construction business down there with my partners and we're based out of Florida and we travel. So we work in, um, you know, Wisconsin, up to Colorado, down to Texas, and we keep doing the loop and we keep building projects. And, and that's growing significantly over the last few years in terms of our, our influence. Now, okay, you have partners there. So mm -hmm. when you go around, there was that, that, that's the quality control, what right. you are referring to. But um, you are not doing that on your own. In the, every partner has their own that's way right. of going around because... You can't just cover all those That's areas. Right. That's right. We have to have a trusted team. And, and How I many think, are there? So in our skate park side, we have about uh, 45, 50 people that are just uh, construction design professionals. And I have a group that I work with um, with that company. It's called New Line Skate Park, so a separate company. And New Line is comprised of basically... I would say the industry leaders in terms of design thinking, I totally trust the team. So when they bring me things, I'm reviewing for health and safety. I'm not critiquing their design work necessarily because we have some really talented designers. I'm looking at context issues for the park. So we're putting these all into public parks. How do the edges work? Can you get a food truck up to it on an events day? Can you bring in bleachers for a yeah. special event? Those sorts of things. Are we preserving trees? Are we um, preserving green space? Do we have access for emergency vehicles? Those are my things. And uh, the rest of the team will focus on specific details about how everything goes together. So the only way it works, Harma, as we said, is to work together. Otherwise, we would not be able to do the volume of work we're doing. No, and I think a lot of companies don't understand that concept, which we talked about, because um, I have seen a lot of very, very talented people leaving Vancouver and the province in general, you know, who had brilliant ideas, foresight, vision, everything else. But for one way or the other, they could not convince the other parties, i.e. might that be boards, might that be um, governments, might it be other uh, organizations where we have to think about it, we don't know yet. Right. And you and I also know that that is a hindrance here because we have so much opportunity, mm -hmm. but it is not expanded. We are not even onto the top level yet. Not even close. No. no. So we are really, because of attitude, if I may place it like that, and we talked about it as well, um, we are stifling in that way. Mm -hmm. um, we have to learn to understand that when you want to move forward is you have to work together as a team. And if you, you can't do it on your own, but the selecting of your team is so important. So important because, A, you have to enjoy going to work every day and you have to enjoy working with the people, number one. 
But number two, you have to rely on your team to produce because I'm making commitments to people through contracts and we're talking about delivering to people who have their own deadlines and constraints and everything is connected. The minute we stop fulfilling our responsibility, you got it. You got it, right? So everything is connected. So um, the team is dramatically important. We have an excellent team. We're just over 30 people now here in the landscape architect side of things. We do urban forestry, arborist work. We have civil engineers in the office that help with our stormwater management. And then we have a full spate of landscape architects and designers that are really talented and passionate about what they do. So now, that now, helps me. Now tell me one thing. Mm. Okay, what do you do if one of your team members is not living up to what they need to do or um, are disruptive or whatever it is? Tell me what you do. That's a good question. I mean, you know what? Because the one, the one chain can just make it all tumble. You got it. It's all about, you know, and I hear this from my partners too. I have principals that work and, and upper uh, senior associates. We talk about those sorts of things and we know that everything is connected. And if there's a negative aspect, it can, it can affect other people. Mm-hmm. We've been very fortunate. I would say that generally our entire team enjoys working with each other frictions and and modest sort of disagreements happen they do but i we have things that we do in our office culture that try to bring people together all the time so we feel like if we confront issues we talk about them we can get through it i don't think we have had issues before where we have to part ways with staff because we just we have a no, it fundamental. Work. It, it just doesn't work. There's a fundamental difference, but it's been modest over 20 years. I could probably count those instances on one hand. You're very lucky. It would probably be less than three fingers, four fingers. You know, for the most part, we do hire for attitude. We ah. do hire for experience, and but I hire a lot of young people who have a little bit of experience. But we teach them. Right? We talk about how we show them the VDZ way of doing things and approaching things. We talk about our core values and we make sure that they make them their core values in terms of how they deliver the services. So we want to be uh, respectful, but we want to be creative. We want to be responsive. We want to be, be involved in our community, all of these things. And, and we get together frequently to talk about it. Turnover? Lots? You know... Up for the first 10 years or 15 years, very little. But I found in the last uh, five years specifically, there's been a lot of changeover. Not not because I'm initiating this, but because I have staff who are changing positions. Uh, free, uh, the municipalities have been hiring a lot of my staff. So I've been yeah, losing. Yeah, they were well trained. They, they go excellently out. trained. Yeah. They know what to do. And so those those staff members are now clients of ours working in public agencies, which So they is know your philosophy. They do. And they know your core values. And they can call us and have a friendly conversation about sure. things. So it's actually working. It's the next phase of our development and maturity as a company. Now our staff are growing in their own influence and going to other places. But generally, we keep staff for a very long time because we want to. We, we know that um, oh, it's essential. they it's become important. more and more valuable. They have that collective library of intelligence about the way we do things. So um, I, I appreciate the staff we have, and I, and I like them to stay, obviously. But situations change, and when that happens, you know, we all have to move on. Now, you were mentioning, and we were talking about before the interview about attitude. In my company, I, mm-hmm. I, I look at attitude. I always say I can train, you know, the specifics, because if the attitude is not there, it's, it's not going to go and work. I find that 
not everybody understands that concept because there's a lot of people say, okay, but yeah, but he's got that degree or he's got that or she's got this. But it doesn't necessarily mean a, 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 a certificate does not mean to say that you're good. Like you can be a lawyer, mm-hmm. for example, and you can be a lousy lawyer. Sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you can also go and find a lawyer who first was a policeman and blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, right. you know, he came into and studied and right. be, he's got the foundation. Right. He's got the expertise on the street. Street expertise is always very good. And... They are the best, and they have also the right attitudes. But in today's society, we also, and we talked about that as well, that um, that attitude is not always available anymore because uh, a younger, lot of youngsters, they, you say something, well, then you hurt their feelings, or you know, you def- offend me, or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, we call them devatjes in Dutch. <laughs> you might want to keep that word, but that's difficult to deal with. I find it difficult to deal with. It is a challenge. You know, it is, as a business owner, you're the HR um, person, you're the the finance person, you're, no matter how big you grow, if you're interested in your business, you're involved in all aspects, right? And so I agree, attitude is huge, but I think that we have to be forthright when we recognize something that isn't going well, and we have to be respectful of each other, but that there's Two responsibilities, the employer, me as someone who is employing this team of professionals, but the staff member themselves, they're young professionals. They have to take personal responsibility in what they're doing too. And we can't be offended by speaking um, plainly and being honest with each other. So, Well, but the, the concept is the, the honesty. I mean, the, the younger ones, they have to understand, and some do and some don't. Right. That's why some climb up the ladder and the other ones don't. That, um, yeah, there is a responsibility when you take on this job. And, you know, input is important. That's for you, and that same applies to us. Um, but you have to recognize them. But it is not per se when you tell somebody that um, maybe you shouldn't talk too much or maybe you shouldn't talk too much about your private life or whatever it is, um, that it is not directly an attack on you, but it affects the business and it affects you too in right. your career. Yeah, that's right. And, and I'm only human too. So the little things bug me from time to time because everybody has different pressures from day to day. But yes, you're right. I mean, you, if you're honest with people, um, you have to hope. I don't know if I hope, but you don't want to offend people, but I'm not looking to yeah, try but if and you're soften. Honest, the question is, if you're honest, are you defending, offending people? I don't think so. Well, you can't control people's reaction to no, your honesty, n- right? No, but that's not your problem. True. True. It isn't because you're looking out for the greater good of the, of the company and, and your clients. And if they are realistic, they start to understand it. Otherwise, they won't fit in your culture. Mm-hmm. That's true. There, there can be tough fits. And those are that, that handful of people I talked about that, that really the, that fit couldn't be resolved. You know, and I've gotten better at seeing that over the years, whereas maybe early on, I might have just tried to make it fit, make it fit and make it and and maybe taking on too much of the responsibility myself. Um, Whereas now um, we're just a little bit more 
A, I think we're better at hiring people. We hire good people. Oh, that's, and that's essential. <laughs> you know, if you hire right, hey, you can't get it right all the time. But when you do, hey, it lasts for a long time and it can go to beautiful places. Back to your point about, you know, it's not about certificates. Everybody has a, a general baseline of getting through the door. You have to have this education. But you define your career based on some of the risks and chances you want to take and some of the experiences you've exposed yourself in the past. I have employees that have worked in nurseries, have done construction, have done physical things around building that make them better designers. You know, Of course, because they are all around. And they can appreciate the people who are building their work. And that is so important when you're speaking to contractors. So um, that's wonderful. And people who haven't had that experience, I find sometimes are excellent high-level designers. So Everybody finds their niche, but everybody has something to offer. And we try and uh, foster that a little bit for the benefit of the company. That's without a doubt, because that's the the core of your business and that you have the good staff and the selection of it. And especially when they stay with you a long time, I think that reflects how it goes. But my husband always has a very good philosophy and he says, leadership shows what your staff is going to be. Hmm. Because it comes from the top, and if it's from the top is not good, then your staff is not going to be good. You know, I, I believe in that. I see the example of my dad and in his business, and we were talking about this. Uh, my dad's been retired for, you know, 15 years or so, but he worked very hard. He was very diligent about what he did. He was there at the same time every day. He had discipline. You know, and there was a lot of respect for what he did because of his personal discipline and how he approached his work. Now, he demanded that from his own staff and he didn't pussyfoot around in how he spoke to them about it. No, but they, I've, no, the Dutch don't. They don't, you know, and that was his generation, right? Yeah. And I'm a, Oh, I'm they a, still do, Mike. Like, yeah, and I'm, I'm the next generation, so maybe I'm a little softer than my dad was, but I still take a lesson from that where he spoke plainly. And uh, when I run into people who used to work for him or suppliers who used to bring stuff to him or buy from him, they always have positive things to say. So I know it's a it's a good roadmap for me. And I try and I try and live up to that in my own business. Well, I think that is very significant of the Dutch culture. Um, most of us, they will say recht voor de raap, as we say that. Um, I'm one of them. But it is, like we discussed also, it's how you bring it. 5% of the, uh, is, is, is related to the content. 95% is how you present it, hmm. how you use your voice and how you approach the person on the other side. And if you do that right, then you can resolve. But if you don't, then... There might be a part of ways, but it is also the standards you set yourself. Like I told you, you know, I teach my staff that um, from Friday 12 noon till Monday 8 o'clock, I'm not available. I've got a family. I want to enjoy my life. I like gardening. I like cooking. I like walking. I like to see people, talk to people. Um, I like to read books. Um, So it's not urgent, but we have a tendency of overlapping our time and intruding on people's life because we've got these wonderful iPhones. <laughs> yeah. And that's a detriment, I think. It's not a positive. I find that a negative. So some of us have two phones. One we have private and one we have for the business because we don't want that interference. So it's a question of, indeed, training staff. I mean, you must do that too. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, that is true. I, I feel like there are blurry lines sometimes between personal and professional. And in our world, um, that can be very hard on, on people. You know, it, it wears you down. I don't want to get a contract at 8 o'clock at night to review for the next morning 9 right. o'clock meeting. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm not receptive to that. And I'm sure you did do that in earlier part oh, of your I career. Oh, I actually did. Right? I did. Yeah. But the funny part is, you know, my people don't do that anymore right. because they have learned that that's not how it's going to work. Right. I, I, I believe in being proactive, but I also believe in, you know, to manage your time schedule very good. Yeah. So you know what's coming up. and It you, does you, give you that freedom. Because you know that, hey, I'm done at this point. And I'm getting better at that, too. And I, I would say I haven't been great about that. I've, I've you know, I never set a lot of uh, boundaries early in my career. It would be all the time. No, you, you learn know. that when you get older, Mark. Yeah. Trust me. <laughs> you build a family, right? And yes. you have, I have a, a, a beautiful family, wife and three beautiful girls. And we have a lot of things we do. So there has to be a time where you switch over. Now, I still am living in that world. I don't switch off completely, but I have learned to put up, you know, some boundaries in terms of when I'm in family time and when I might be in work time. I can tell you one thing. Your, if your health deteriorates and you got to face some very drastic issues, you start to think different. I'm sure. I'm sure. Because then your life becomes very important and your work becomes kind of secondary. Right. Because it's not all about the biggest car, the biggest house, the biggest did and that. For me, life is the people you encounter and the impression you left with them. That's at the end of your life, I feel most important, not what I have in my bank account. Right. Yeah. It's your legacy. In a way, it's, a, you know, you have... Uh you start your career trying to grapple and save and survive and build something. And like you said, Harma, I'm, I'm aware of your, your, the challenges you've overcome medically and, and, and survived and become more focused. Change your perspective on oh, what is personal, what is business, and what do you want to accomplish. You know, and for me, I've had the benefit of good health, but not everyone around me has had that. My parents and my, my Oma and my, my Opa, uh, you know, just notorious the Vanderzam families for bad hearts. So I've seen men in my family, you know, in their fifties, you know, pass away far too young because of health issues. So you you know that life is finite, finite, and and you've got time to do certain things, but you have to also make time for those other things that are really important as well. And at the end of it, it's they were the most important ones, and it's not the big ones; they will be the small ones. Tell me one thing: mm -hmm. what's your most significant thing you think you've achieved as an individual? Wow. Um, I you, put you on the spot. Yeah, yeah. Significant. I mean, I, I think if you'd ask me that. the most enjoyable. The most enjoyable? Yeah, I love our firm. I love the business. Oh, I, love I the, can understand you know, that. And I think that's it. it. It's, you know, it was about the project specifically and no, I really enjoy that. For it. But it's really the people in the business and what we do and, and we, we affect other people in communities. And I think that vehicle, Vanderzam and Associates as a vehicle for creating social change, either in the built environment or in the lives of people affected by our work, is probably um, the biggest achievement to date. I think we have to say goodbye. It was wonderful talking to you and I wish you all the success with your future and I'm sure we will hear from you again, Mark. Thank you Thanks, very much. Thanks, Arma. It was great. Wonderful to meet you.
Ooit liep mijn vader in de lente met mij naar het kleine meer. Hij liep me in het water kijken, ik zag mezelf als oude heer. Zomer vloog voorbij, mijn ogen traanden van de pijn. Want een kind kan nog niet weten wat waterrimpelingen zijn. Begon te razen, liep ik alleen naar het kleine meer. Bekeek mezelf in het wilde water en zag mijn jongens trekken weer. Wie weet dat zo'n rimpeling het gevolg is van de wind. Die kan in de spiegel kijken en dan. Zichzelf weer zien als kind. Eeuwige jeugd is zonder spijt, geen flauwe nul van plaats of tijd. Er is alleen maar heden, geen toekomst of verleden. Zolang me heugt, eeuwige jeugd. Ik zal naar het kleine meer gaan om voet te zetten op het ijs. Het water zal me dragen tot het winter weer verveelt. Dan zal ik zinken in de lente, verdrinken in mijn We zijn weer gekomen aan het einde van dit programma. Iedereen een heel fijn weekend gewenst. Be safe, be happy. Dag. Connect FM 91.5. Atli Radio.
FM 91.5. Hustly Radio. Ik wil niet opstaan in het donker. Ik wil mij zijn, maar dan jonger. Heel lang was ik gezonder. Maar opeens gaat het zo vlug. En ik wil terug. Ik moet terug naar jou. Ik wil uit lachen en uit daten. En uit pannenkoeken eten. En alle tijd vergeten. Dus overal te laat. Weet dat het bestaat, want het bestaat met jou. Je weet niet half hoe het me gek maakt, dat ieder nieuw gebrek maakt. Dat ik zomaar van het pad raak, waar ik ooit op stond. Op vaste grond, op vaste grond met jou. Als ik kijk naar de eeuwigheid, hoe klein is daar onze tijd? Het is maar één dag en dan is ik 